0: Dear Fathers, we come before you today, truly we pray that this story which happened so long ago will resonate in our hearts and that we will learn the lessons about who you are and how we relate to you. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now I'm sure that uh, many of us uh, know people who uh, are not believers and uh, sometimes uh, they, will, they will come to you and ask you to pray for them or well, they themselves might pray and I realize that there are a few situations where this happens. Uh, you might notice them yourself, about how it uh, spurs you to pray a bit more. So first of all, you know, if you're seriously ill, or your friend is seriously ill, there's some illness, some pain that this doesn't go away. Uh, that's a great encouragement for people to go to God. Uh, another situation that I comes to mind is exams. Isn't exams is almost as good as illness in getting people to go to God in prayer. Okay? You're not sure whether you're going to pass it's very touch and go. Okay, then you really go to God and say, God, you know, I really need help here. Or maybe there's some situation where things are out of control. And, uh, you know, you really don't know whether something's going to work out for you. Maybe it's a job interview. Maybe you're flying in the airplane. You're having a really good time watching your, 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 your plasma screen thing there. And all of a sudden, the plane starts shaking. The lights go out. That's when you really start praying, right? Now, why do people pray during these times? What do they pray for? What are they asking God for? Well, I think when you really look at, look at those situations, you'll notice that in each of those situations, people feel powerless. Right? They feel that they, are, they have no control, they have no power over the situation they're under. They're sick, exam is coming up, they haven't studied enough, you're sitting in an airplane or sitting in a boat, things are out of control, you feel powerless. So what are you asking God for? You want God to give you His power. You want God to help you out. You want God's power because you have no power over the situation. Now, one of the problems uh, in life is how do you access God's power? What is the secret of accessing God's power? And that's where religion comes in, isn't it? So many times, you know, do we do, we do some ceremony? Do you uh, pr- say a prayer in a certain way? Or do you speak and ask someone to pray for you because that person has some power over a God or some sort of influence of a God? Do you burn jaw sticks? Or do you go to some holy place where... You know, the antenna to God is particularly sensitive. But many of those uh, actions that we do to access God's power is, is like a guess, isn't it? A human guess. It's very hit and miss, like a shot in the dark. As we come to today's passage in chapter 4, uh, we see a situation very similar to the situation which we're talking about. Because in chapter uh, 4, verse 1 to 2, we see that the Israelites have come into a battle. Now, a bit of history is required, and I think as we understand the history, will help us understand the passage a bit better. So if you look up here on the slide, okay, oh, it looks a bit bigger when I was looking at it on my computer, but okay, it doesn't matter Now, uh, God had brought uh, the twelve tribes of Israel into his promised land, okay the different colors reflect the different uh, areas which are given, and here, if you look at the passage, it says that the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites were camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Ephek. Now we don't know where Ebenezer is, but we know that Ephek is here. Okay, if you can see Effek, okay, in Ephraim. And here they fought against the Philistines. Now we know historically uh, the, uh, the Philistines were actually more technologically advanced than the, um, the Israelites in the sense that they controlled the plains. Uh, maybe they had mastery over horses or mastery over shooting arrows from the horses or something, or maybe they chariots, who knows, right? But if you, if you look at the next slide, okay, uh, again, if you can see, this is the hill country. Okay, The hill country is all here, and this is where Israel had mastery. They had mastery over the hill country, but the Philistines had mastery over the plains. So they were always fighting back and forth between the Israelites in the hill country and the Philistines in the plains. And here in verse 1 and 2, they fought and Israel lost. So, here the Israelites sat, sat down in their hill country, in their base or whatever, and they said, you know, what are, things are out of control, our control. We have no power. Uh, why do we lose? You know, we, we need God's power. And that's why they asked the question in verse 3. When the soldiers returned to the camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? And that's a very, very good question because they recognized that it wasn't because the Philistines were technologically better or strategically better, but they recognized that it was God who had brought defeat on them that day. So their question was, how do we harness God's power back onto our side so that we do not lose again? Now, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the book of 1 Samuel and what is the situation in 1 Samuel? How would you describe the state of God's people? Well, uh, I think there's one word to describe the state of God's people as we've been reading 1 Samuel 1, 2 and 3 and as well the the historical background to it. Israel was unfaithful. Remember last week we kept looking at Judges, at the end of Judges. Every man did what he wanted to do. He didn't do what God wanted them to do. They didn't serve God, they didn't obey God, they just did what they wanted to do, they were unfaithful. But not only were the people unfaithful, the leaders were unfaithful. So about two weeks ago, we saw how uh, Eli was the chief priest and he was a weak leader. And his children, who were also serving as priests, Hopmi and Pinihas, they were described as wicked. They were greedy, they abused the sacrificial system. Uh, And they committed sexual immorality with the people working in the temple. And we can see a bit of the unfaithfulness because if you look at this passage again, if you look at verse 1 to 2, before they go to war, uh, they never ask God whether this is what God wanted them to do. They never prayed to God, they never consulted God, they never asked God for guidance, they just went to war because they felt that it was in their power to go to war and to win on their own without God. But it's only now that when they lose, then they say, why did God do this to us? What should we do now? So that's, they're asking the right question, right? Why did the Lord bring the feet upon us today before the Philistines? And what should be the answer? The obvious answer should be, for us reading 1 Samuel, for people living those days would be, it is because Israel were unfaithful. Because if they were unfaithful, God had said all along that He would not be with them, He would not support them in going to the promised land. Now in Joshua chapter 23, Uh, Joshua was the first leader of God's people who brought them into the promised land after Moses. And this is what uh, Joshua said to uh, the Israelites before he died, right? He says in Joshua chapter 23, The Lord has driven out before you great and powerful nations. To this day, no one is able to withstand you. One of you routs a thousand. That means one of you can defeat a thousand, right? Because the Lord your God fights for you just as He promised. So be very careful to love the Lord your God. Now you can go and read the rest of it. There's many other sections there but it's all the same thing, right? But in verse 16, Joshua gives this warning. If you violate the covenant of the Lord your God which He commanded you and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, the Lord's anger will burn against you and you will quickly perish from the good land he has given you. So why did the Lord bring defeat on Israel before the Philistines? The question there, the, the very important question, it is because they were being unfaithful. If they were faithful, God would, would bring them victory. But they, choose, they chose not to love God, and they chose not to obey God. They were doing their own thing, and that's why they lost. But what was the answer that the Israelites came up with? We know that that's the right answer, right? That's the correct answer. Tick. What is the wrong answer that Israel came up with? Well, in verse 3b, they ask the question, right? Why did the Lord bring the Peter on us today? And the answer is, let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. Wrong, 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 right? It's like, let's say, you're sitting for your exam and uh, you get your results back. And you get a big F. What is the lesson to be learned there? Don't play so much computer. Study harder. Study smarter. Ask your teacher for help. But instead, what is the answer they came up with? I failed because I didn't have my magic pen. Right? Which is completely the wrong answer, isn't it? Because they thought, okay, if we bring God's ark, we will have victory. And why is that? Well, look at the passage carefully, right? Okay, it's very important to always look carefully. It says, let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. The word it there, if you look at your Bibles in the footnote, it can can mean he, right? So what they they thought was, okay, we've got this Ark. This is what the Ark looks like. Okay, next slide. It's uh, God had given them instructions. In, uh, when they were in the desert to Moses which Moses then passed on to the people that they had to build this it's like a big box okay a uh, gold box and inside the box okay there's another slide if you can't see that color this is a this, we don't actually we don't actually have the ark anymore It's, it's unlike in the Raiders of the lost ark right we, this is just what people envisage it, envisage it to be based on the instructions we have in the Bible but, but you see the ark was important because it, in, the, in the ark itself it contained the law the tablets that God had had used his finger to write on and uh, given to Moses and Moses put it into the ark. So, they thought that if we had the ark, look carefully at verse 3, right? It will go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. Now, why was that? See, they had a very magical, superstitious idea of the ark. They felt that if they had the ark, God would be with them like God is that, you know, uh, going to the battlefield with them and they would win the war against the Philistines. So that's why, in the next verse, in verse 4, it says So the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim. This is very important, right? It shows you how they had a magical view of the ark because. When they looked at the ark, they didn't think, okay, the ark symbolizes all that is inside the ark, which is the law, the covenant that God had made with his people, the requirements of God's people to love uh, him back, right? But instead, they saw the ark as enthroned between the cherubim. These are the cherubim, like these angel like uh, 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 creatures at the top of the ark, right? And they said, okay, God is enthroned there. That is where God is. And if we bring God to the battlefield, He's, he's in, that, in between the cherubim, He will not let us lose because He will not let His Ark be captured by the enemies. And in the past, you know, when we used to bring the Ark in, we always won. So that's what's missing today. So, as we look at this uh, picture, is that really true? Is God really there? I don't know, I can't see God there, but you know, was He really there when the Ark was built? Well, in Exodus chapter 25, which is uh, where it refers to this very incident, it says, uh, God told uh, Moses, place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark of of testimony, which I'll give you, uh, which is uh, the law and everything else. And there above the cover, between the two cherubim, that are over the Ark of the testimony, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. Now, if you read carefully what God says, He says that the Ark symbolically would represent His presence. It will be a symbol of His presence on earth. He will meet with God's people uh, through uh, the symbol of the Ark. But He never said that this is where I am, right? I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm enclosed or I'm sort of constrained or captured within the small space at the top of the ark. But that's the way that God's people saw him, right? They said, okay, God's there, that's where he is. They were making the ark like an idol. So, that's why when we read next verse, we see that when the ark, in verse 5, when the ark of the Lord's covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. And hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what is all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? You see, for them, when they saw the ark coming into the camp, uh, they were all pumped up. It's like this American pastor said, no? It's like they had home court advantage. Okay? And that's why they thought, wow, this is really great, because God has come into our midst. It's like, you know, Michael Jordan is here, and he's going to win, or Kobe Bryant, or whatever, he's going to win for us this great battle. And the Philistines, they thought the same thing too. They had this superstitious, magical idea of idolatry. I think, okay, wow, look, here they are, they're really pumped up, the Israelites. What are they shouting about? What are they shouting about? And they said, a God, in verse 7, a God has come into the camp, they said. We are in trouble. Nothing like this has uh, has happened before. Woe to us, who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the desert. Now, if you actually uh, listen to what the Philistines say, they have their facts a bit mixed up, right? And obviously, their information is a bit mixed up as well because uh, Israel didn't have many gods. They only had one god. And uh, when God struck down the Egyptians, it wasn't uh, with the plates in the desert. He actually struck down the Egyptians in Egypt itself. But the point is, this, is this the right point. They recognize that God the God of the Israelites, its a very powerful God. And that's why they said in the next slide, you can see here, right? They said, look, isn't this the God, you know, this Ark, isn't he the God that struck down and freed the Israelites from Egypt? And Egypt was like a huge superpower in those days. It's like um, when you say, you know, the military might of America. I mean, it's equivalent to that. The, the Egyptians of those days were, were the, the premier military force of the day. And they're saying, look, this ask, isn't he the God that, that freed Israelites who were slaves in Egypt and brought them out? What chance do we have? Right? You see Philist- Philistia is here, Philistines. It's so small compared to Egypt, right? So what they're saying is, well, no, if this God is so powerful and he can free the, Egyptian, uh, the Israelites from the Egyptians, then what hope do we have? And we're just a small country in Philistine. So, as we come to this part of the passage, the Israelites and the Philistines both expect the same thing. They both expect that Israel will win and Philistine will lose. right? Because this is the God that is represented here by this ark. And He is there enthroned at the top of the ark between the two cherubim. But what happens instead? Well, in verse 10, the Philistines fought and they lost. No, it didn't say that, right? The Philistines fought and the Israelites were Defeated and every man fled to his tent. Basically it means that there's no more fighting, right? There's no more regrouping, there's no more retreat. The whole battle is lost, right? Because everybody went back up to the mountains back to their tent. Uh battle was over, game over, right? The slaughter was very great, and Israel lost thirty thousand foot soldiers, and the Ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hobni and Pinihas, died. Now what is happening here? Because not only did uh, Israel lose with the Ark, but 30,000 soldiers were lost. That is about eight times or seven and a half times more soldiers than they lost the first time. They had brought the Ark to the battlefield and they lost seven times or eight times more soldiers than they did without the Ark. So how could this be? What, 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 what was happening here? Why did this happen? I think the lesson for us, as we look at this, is that God would not allow himself to be manipulated. Right? God would not allow himself to be treated as their servant, as a sort of a genie, as a waiter, in a superstitious sort of way. And I think this is an important lesson for us because the whole of this first section of 1 Samuel shows them seeing God in a very superstitious way. You know, God is here. He's in this piece of furniture. He's living up here. If we move him here, he's with us. And he will protect us because, you know, physically, he is with us and he, he will not allow shame or disgrace to come about in the capture of himself. But God doesn't allow himself to be manipulated that way. That is not the way to have a relationship with God and that's not the way to access God's power. I think that's really important to us because I think that that way of thinking, that wrong way of thinking, still exists for us today. Do you treat God that way where you go to God and you only want to manipulate God in a magical way so that He will use His power for your benefit? Now, I can think of many uh, examples. I wrote down many examples. I have to take out some of them. But some of the more obvious ones to me are, okay. I, I remember this, the prayer of Jabez. And I want to remember prayer at Jabez because, you know, there's one part where it says here, you're supposed to pray this prayer for every day, unswervingly, unwaveringly, for 30 days. And if you do that, you will discover how God can release God's favor, power and protection on you. If you pray this prayer for 30 days in a row, and this is a a guarantee that uh, the the altar makes. But I'm also thinking to myself, if you, you know, is, will God, God allow Himself to be manipulated this way? So, you know, you can live whatever you want to do, uh, you know, be a really ungodly way of living, but as long as you pray this prayer 30 days in a row, every morning, follow His instructions, you get God's favor, power, and protection. Is, is, is God manipulated that way? Can you manipulate God that way? I don't think so, right? I don't think God is that sort of God. I went to a church where, um, this person came up to the stage and said, you know, ever since I came to this church, I have been a good student. Before I, was a, no, before I came to this church, I was a F student, but then now I'm in this church, I'm an A student. And then some other people came and said, you know, when I came to this church, I used to be a, a Giordano wearing person. But then now I'm a Gucci wearing person. Okay, But then I, I'm wearing Marks and Spencer, so I'm halfway, right? Okay. So, but, is God really going to give you all these things? Can you access God's power because of that church? Just because you go to that church every Sunday, will somehow God's power be blessed and given to you, access to you? So, I've also heard of uh, another place where, say, you know, if you give money to a particular cause, well, God will do something for you. Can you manipulate God in that way as well? Or, if you access God through a particular pastor, or a particular blessed individual I've actually heard people say, you know uh, I I, I feel the spirit moving in me if you come to me, God will bless you with a new house or new car next year Do you think God works through that person, that this person is so blessed to be able to give you a new car and a new house? See, I don't think God appreciates being used that way If God is a God that is described in the Bible where even the hairs on our head cannot fall on the ground without God knowing about it, or being controlled? Can we control God in a way and access His power? I don't think so. And I think that it's actually very insulting to God when we do that. Now, I know that uh, sometimes when I was younger, actually, a lot of my kids were younger, they used to go for swimming lessons. So we used to join um, some family friends and we used to go to Juchet for dinner on the weekend. And in those days, I don't know it's still the case now, in Juchet at night, sometimes you have some... Um, Women of the night, you know, women of the night, right? they are people who do things at night and they are sitting with their clients in uh, this restaurant that we're at, open air restaurants. And uh, and I see these women of the night and they're with their clients and I, you look at them and you think, do they, do they really love their clients? Do they care for their clients? Do they, are they in some sort of relationship with their clients? I don't think so, right? What do they really want from their client? They're only interested in, in what they can get from their client, their money. And I'm thinking, well actually, when we use God in this way, when well we only want to use God's power, we only come to God because we want his power to either get rich or to solve a problem or to get a new house or a new car or to be blessed and get A-marks or to dress in Gucci. Aren't we exactly like those women of the light in, in, in Juchet? Where we're just using God. We don't really want a relationship with God at all. We just want to use God, to use His power to achieve a certain, conc- uh, a certain end in my life. And I think, you know, isn't, how would God feel about that? Do you think God really wants a sort of relationship with us? I don't think so. And I think He'd be really insulted that we want a relationship with Him like that. Okay, now after the first section, if you notice uh, this chapter, it's actually divides two sections, right? The first section is all about the loss, the great defeat in battle where there are 30,000 people killed, 30,000 Israelites killed in the last part. But the second half of this chapter focuses on just two deaths, the death of Eli and the deaths of uh, um daughter-in-law. Now if you see here in verse 12, that same day, a Benjamite ran from the battle line and went uh, to Shiloh, his toes torn and dust on his head. Now, this guy, uh, he would have done very well in the Stand Sharp Marathon, right? Because, uh, if you look on the next slide, see the battle was uh, fought here in effect. Okay, Shiloh was here. And remember, this is the hill country. If you can see, there's a spine of hills here. So he ran about 30 kilometers all uphill, up the hill, because they were on the plains and, and Shiloh was up in the, in, the, in the mountains. And he ran there and he had bad news to tell. He had bad news to tell of the defeat of Israel, as well as the death of Eli and uh, Hophni and Pinihas, but also the capture of the ark. And Eli there, the old priest, uh, he's older than before now, right? Because it says there that his eyes, in the last chapter his eyes could barely see. Now his eyes cannot see. He's He's gotten older. And he hears this guy running up the hill and all the upcry. And he asked this man, What has happened? What has happened? Right? Tell me what has happened. And he says in verse 17, Israel fled before the Philistines, the army has suffered heavy losses, and also your two sons Hophni and house are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. When he announced the ark of God, Eli fell backwards off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died, for he was an old man and heavy, and he had led Israel for forty years. Now what happened here? How did Eli die? Did he have a heart attack? Did he have a stroke? Lost his balance, broke his neck? Now, we don't really know how he exactly died, right? But these are just the superficial reasons, these are the surface reasons because underneath it all, when we know that Eli died, we know that it's God's judgement. Now you cannot, absolutely cannot understand 1 Samuel chapter 4 if you do not understand what is happening in the rest of the story. If there's any part of the Bible where you need to understand what is happening in the rest of the story, then 1 Samuel chapter 4 is it, isn't it? Because when we read that Eli has died, when Hopni and Pinyas has died, we know that it's a fulfillment of what God has promised in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and 3. Because in 1 Samuel chapter 2, and this is where you need a Bible, turn back me to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30, God had promised, God had sent a man of God to Eli and promised him this. In verse 30, he he had declared on judgment, Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and your father's house would minister before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me. For those who honor me I will honor, but those who despise me will be disdained. The time is coming where I'll cut short your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your family line, and you will see distress in my dwelling. Although good will be done to Israel and all, and all your family line, there will never be an old man. Every one of you that I do not cut off from my altar will be spared only to blind your eyes with tears and to grieve your heart. And all your descendants will die in the prime of life. And what happens to your two sons, Hopni and Pini House, will be assigned to you. They will both die in the same day. Okay, remember that happened in chapter two, and then last week. God says exactly the same thing to Samuel in the vision. Okay, so in chapter 3, verse 11, God says to Samuel the same thing. See, I'm going to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons made themselves contemptible, but he failed to restrain them. Therefore I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. So what happens here, as many commentators say, is that there is a tension in the story. As we read through the story, there is a great tension because we know that God has condemned and judged Eli's family, especially Hophni and Pinihas. And it's like watching a movie, you know. So, like, just Wednesday, I was watching a movie with my, uh, not my, my, I was watching a movie with my dad, right? What's I watching? Some alien movie. So anyway, when you're watching it, right? There's one part of the movie where this guy decides, I'm going out of the safe area, the this building, in the dark, alone, by myself, to go and find something. So now I whispered to my dad, this guy I sure did. Sure did. Because, you know, in, in the alien movie, nobody ever goes out in the dark by yourself, you know, to go do, do some funny thing by yourself. I right? sure die. So, of course, you know, you're watching the movie and you're just waiting for this person to die. And that's exactly what's happening here, isn't it? You're reading one, Timer two, and three, and God has said, He will judge Eli's house. Hobney and Pinney House will die. So you're waiting and waiting, right? When is this great hammer coming down from heaven to slam down a Hobney and Pini House? And here it is, isn't it? Because the whole story, as you look at it on the surface, in isolation, is about the loss of the ark of God. But actually, underlying the whole story as you're reading it, as part of 1 Samuel is, what is God going to do? When is He going to bring judgment on Eli's house? And therefore, when you go back to the story as you're reading it, in verse 4, right? there's a small verse in verse 4. Right? He says, So the people sent... Uh, the men to Shiloh, and they brought back the ark of the covenant. And then there's this little verse at the end, little sentence says, "And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God." It's just a small line, insignificant detail, just a throwaway line, right? But that is the key, isn't it? Because God is not bringing the ark to the battlefield. God is bringing Hophni and Phinehas to the battlefield to kill them. Now, I don't know about the people then. I don't know what they were cheering about. Uh, if I was living those days, I wouldn't say I wouldn't even uh, be living in the same city as uh, Hophni and Pinhas. I wouldn't even share a taxi with them, right? Because you know, collateral collateral damage and all those sort of things, right? But you know, Israel, if they had if they had seen Hophni and Pinhas coming, they'd say, "Oh, we sure die now. Right? Sure die. I mean, these people are coming. God is going to kill them somewhere. I don't want to be close to them." And that's exactly what happens, isn't it? Because right at the very end of uh, in, of, of that section, in verse 11, the Ark of God was captured. And you think that's the big thing, right? But it says, And Eli's two sons, Hobni and Pinihas died. See, historically, in light of the whole story, which is more important? That the ark of God is captured or Hobney and Pinihas died? It was that Hobni and Pinihas died. That was what God had promised and that's what God was doing. Now, as you're reading this story, as, uh, as you think about it, I-, I was thinking about it. You might think, Wow, this is go- it's really unfair, isn't it? Why didn't just God kill Hobni and Pinihas, uh by getting them run over by a cart or something? Why did he have to kill 38,000 other people, right? It sounds so unfair. Why didn't, you know, if God just wanted to kill two people, did he have to kill peop- uh, 34,000 people? I mean, what sort of God is that? I don't know whether you struggle with it, but I struggle with it. I think, you know, why did God do that? But I think that actually, when you read other parts of the Bible, you see that Hobney and Pinihas and Eli were, were not just the only problems, as we've been seeing in the book of Samuel, they reflected the wider problem of Israel. So if you look up here in Psalms chapter uh, 78, right, Psalm 78, it actually looks back to what happened when the ark was captured. And it says a, a very remarkable thing, because it says almost the same thing as we read earlier to, in Joshua chapter 23. He drove out the nations before them, and he loted their lands to them as an inheritance. He settled the tribes of Israel in their homes. But they put God to the test and rebelled against the Most High. They did not keep his statutes. Like their fathers, they were disloyal and faithless. Remember I said unfaithfulness was the problem in Israel? As unreliable as a faulty bow. They angered him with their high places and aroused his jealousy with their idols. When God heard them, he was very angry. He rejected Israel completely. He abandoned the tabernacle in Shiloh, the tent he had set up among men. He sent the ark of his might into captivity, the splendor, his splendor into the hands of, of the enemy. See, what happened was, we read that Eli, his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they despised God. They didn't honor God. But it wasn't just Eli, Hophni and Penehas. It was Israel. Israel did not honor God and they despised God. See, when Israel looked at the ark, what were they looking at? they were looking at the top of the ark. Okay, God is there. You know, He's living there between the cherubim. But instead they forgot what they should be looking at when they looked at the ark, which was what was inside the ark, which was the promises of God, but also the demands of God and the requirements of God for His people. And that's why God didn't just kill Hobni and Pinihas and Eli, but He also killed the people of Israel. Now, as we come to the last death, uh, it's quite a strange story, right? You, you sort of ask, so why, why is we told about Pinhas's daughter-in-law? We've not even given her name. And we learn, right, the very last two verses, why uh, it's recorded for us. Because she named her son uh, Ichabod, which means no glory, or where is the glory? So she named the, the boy Ichabod, saying the glory has departed from Israel. There's no glory. Where's the glory? because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and husband. She said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Now, I've been thinking a bit about what she said in verse 22 and the name of Ichabod. Because she uh, records for us, is recorded for us, that she thought that because the ark was gone, the glory of God was gone. But when you think of the story, was the glory of Israel gone only because the ark was gone? Is it because God was living at the top of the cherubim, therefore when the Philistines took it away from Israel, therefore the glory of God was gone? No, I think it's more than that, isn't it? Because actually the glory of God was gone when they became unfaithful. But it was symbolically or representatively shown because he allowed his ark to be captured. So the problem was not the capture of the ark of God. The problem was the unfaithfulness of God's people. That was the problem. And that's why the ark was captured. But in another way, when you think of it, did the glory of God really depart with the ark? Because in light of the whole story, actually God is glorified. You know why? Because God keeps His word, isn't it? He said in chapter two. He said in chapter three, I will not allow Eli's family, Hophni and house, to bring disgrace to me and my temple and my sacrificial system. And in chapter four, he brings that word into action. See, so remember in chapter three, it says in chapter three verse nineteen, the Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of his words fall to the ground. Everything that God told Samuel came true. And that's exactly what happens here. He gives his word to Samuel, the word of judgment about Eli's sons, and it does not fall to the crown, it comes true. So in a way, actually, as we read this part, even though the ark is captured, God is glorified because of what happens. Now, it's a terrible thing uh, to have the glory of God depart from you. It's a terrible thing to have God's presence taken from you. But I think for us, it's good The good thing for us is we now have God's glory not because we have the ark, right? I don't know where the ark is here. I don't see the ark. We don't have uh, the temple, right? We neither have the law but we have God's glory in Jesus. Okay, so the next slide. So Jesus says um, in John chapter 17 to his disciples, uh, uh, he says to God regarding his disciples, I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as I have, you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. So where do we get God's glory from? Not from some religious furniture, right? Okay, We don't have uh, the bones of John the Baptist here in the church or something, right? We have God's glory because Jesus is united with us. We have the glory that comes from Jesus. Therefore, our glory comes from a relationship with Jesus. God gives us His glory through Jesus and we have a relationship with Jesus because we love Him and care for Him and obey Him and treat Him not just as our Savior but as our Lord. You notice that we do not have God's glory because we do good works or we do religious things, right? Right? He has given us His glory. But our relationship with Him is that we keep loving and and obeying Him and being faithful to Him. Now, in conclusion, I want you to ask yourself, what sort of relationship do you have with God? What is your relationship with God based on? Is your relationship with God based on the form or is it based on substance? Is your relationship with God based on practicing religious acts Or is it a relationship? Because God is not really impressed with our religious acts. You know, you could come to church, you could go to Bible study, you could pray to God, you could speak in tongues, is God impressed? No. God is interested in a relationship with us, a relationship where we love Him, we care for Him, we obey Him, uh, we are thankful for Him, we praise Him. Uh, Is your relationship with God based on superstition? or based on obedience and faithfulness. Because just because, because you wear a cross on your neck, just because you come from a Christian family, um, just because you, you know, I remember a, a friend of mine, a relative of mine said, oh, will, I'm still saved, you know why? Because my church still sends me their church newsletter. Okay, the newsletter doesn't say, a relationship Jesus does. So what sort of relationship do you have with God? My uncle um, was in town just last week. Uh, I think some of you might have known him. He lives in Switzerland. And we prayed for him as a church many years ago because he was diagnosed with some terminal throat cancer. He was a lifelong smoker. And it was really miraculous because he's completely healed of his cancer. Uh, Even the doctor in Switzerland says that it's a miracle. But the sad thing is, he's willing to come to me and to say, oh, you know, I really need God's power to heal me of this cancer, you know, to save me from this terrible throat cancer which I have. But now that God has saved me, I don't really need to have a relationship at all with Him. I don't need to have a relationship with this God. I only need God's power. And like I tell my uncle, you know, the most important thing is not God's power to heal throat cancer because God is all about God's grace and he, he, he saved us by sending His Son Jesus to die for us. Jesus died on the cross as atonement for our sins, He substituted Himself for us. He's our Creator, our Sustainer and God doesn't want our relationship with Him to be based on just okay, you are like my slave, my waiter, my genie, I need to rub, rub the magic Bible for a little while so that you can answer my prayers. No. The relationship we have with God is, is not like that. It's one where it's a relationship where He is our God and our Saviour. Where we come to Him in obedience and faithfulness and recognize Him for who He really is. That He's not just there to do our bidding, but He is our God, our God Almighty. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we really pray that we will understand who you really are, your true character that you will not be constrained, you will not be locked in uh, to answering our prayers or giving us your power because we we impress you or do some good work or go through some person or go through some religious rite. But dear Father, help us to see from your word that you are God who is almighty, who has loved us through Jesus, who has saved us, who has given your very own son to die for us and that we in a relationship with you through Jesus. And uh, dear Father, help us not to be superstitious or magical in the way that we relate to you. Help us to see that our faithfulness counts to you, that we are only saved because we remain in a relationship with you, because we love you, and we reverence you, and we worship you in this way. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.